0: This is John Anderson Direct with Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Please note that John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming,
1: which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum. Let me introduce my guests for this conversation, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Helen and I have talked before. We had a bit of fun about something that was outrageous, uh, but what she had to say in terms of unpacking where our culture is going, is very concerning. It was very concerning indeed. Now, Helen and James have shot to fame as two of three people behind what's become known as the Grievance Studies Affair, in which they concocted quite outlandish journal articles, only to have them accepted by several prominent critical race and gender studies journals. If you want to know more about them, you'll find them online, Uh, in my earlier conversation with Helen, uh, amongst many other sources. James and Helen are now the authors of the much-anticipated book, Cynical Theories, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender and identity and why this harms everyone. Uh, James is holding up a copy. I have one online. I can't wait to get a hardback. It's really very, very well written. It's very easy to get through. It's unpacking of what's happening is very powerful and it's been very positively reviewed, so I do recommend that you get a copy of it. People are seeing that it's a very important work, I would say a critically important work, and so I commend it to you. It's dense, but it's readable and it's packed with powerful information. But James, if I can come to you first, I think you're indicating that there's an important anniversary
0: that's right, the grievance studies affair went public on October second, uh, two thousand and eighteen. So we are now at the second anniversary since those papers were delivered, the story of those papers was delivered to the public to to reveal what we had uncovered and and come to be familiar with in, in certain sectors of academia. So today is um, the second birthday of the Grievance Studies affair, and we can, I guess celebrate that.
1: Well, well, let's start to discuss uh, some of the things that you've been writing. And uh, in terms of the book, I hope it is shaming people into thinking a little more critically, if I can use that word. Now, just to give a little more background for listeners, in this book, you write that critical theories, uh, and in fact, you call the book cynical theories, critical theories with critical crossed out and replaced with cynical. Uh, you uh, set out to explain how theories have developed into the driving force, no less, of the culture wars of our era. And this is the bit that really captured me. Uh, You say that critical theory effectively deconstructs what you as the authors term the old religions of human thought. For example, conventional religions like Christianity are done away with, rejected completely. But so too are secular ideologies, not just democratic capitalism, but Marxism as well. Uh, And all cohesive modern theories are found to be wrong and inadequate. Science is rejected. Reason is rejected. Philosophical liberalism is rejected. Notions of progress are rejected. It strikes out against even the concept of the Enlightenment. All is swept away and replaced with a new religion, social justice, with a capital S, and a capital J, no less. So perhaps I can ask you to tell us what critical theory is and then tell us why you prefer to describe it as cynical theory.
2: Okay, so um critical theory has has two meanings. So there, there's the Frankfurt school, which is um critical theory with capital C and T, but um we're not really looking at that so much. We might do at some point because it does have some influence. But in this book, we're looking at um critical theories which have come primarily from the postmodern. Um, type of thought. So any theories that are critical in this sense of trying to dismantle structures and institutions and and revolutionise on a cultural level, those are the theories that we're looking at as they developed from postmodernism through um, critical race theory, postcolonial theory, intersectional feminism, queer theory and all the others into what we have now which is best known as social justice, um, social justice scholarship and activism. do do you want to say why we said it was cynical
0: (laughs) Uh, sure um yeah so critical theory is kind of a broad category of thought which would include the frankfurt school's capital c and t critical theory as a formal way of thinking about things tends to believe that society is organized into systems of power and dominance and that uh that those systems tend to hide themselves very well. They tend to make them them look themselves look natural or reasonable or uh, based in evidence and science and and rationality. All of these great things from the Enlightenment and tend to hide the ways that they actually oppress people. And so, critical theory is developed to try to pick at the problems that arise within these different uh, within our societies and our organizations or institutions and even within individuals and and other relationships to find the way that those hidden systems of power are actually manifest and relevant. So in practice, the result is to read more or less every social phenomenon, every interaction, every institution, every relationship in the most cynical light possible, particularly trying to assume that uh, people often have Far worse intentions than they do, or that the say the progress of uh, civil rights legislation or the progress of science has not general generated genuine progress but has instead just moved around and hidden the deeper underlying problems which are structural and systemic to the whole society. So it's a very cynical way to read society and interactions and intentions. So for example, if, uh, you were to find yourself in a disagreement with somebody who's a critical race theorist and you believe that you're doing so on the the grounds of evidence or fairness, they would tell you that it's actually that you have uh, a hidden desire to maintain your power and privilege that you have not properly critically examined. And the point of critical theories is to get you to recognize that you actually have self-interested or uh, willfully ignorant motivations in disagreeing. And so, again, this very cynical read of your intentions and your motivations is at the core. So I think that on the cover, we, we put critical theories and crossed out critical for the word cynical. I think that that, that communicates that idea uh,
1: as well as can be done graphically. You also describe in a way that I think is very, very useful indeed. Uh, what... This wokeness term really means the people who have come to see things through these critical lenses and have reached the new uplands that the rest of us can only dream about. Those who have described what some people might call a great awakening. Now, you describe what wokeness is. The term's being used a lot at the moment, uh, but you see it as being uh, describing somebody who can see the truth behind racism and transphobia. Uh, and homophobia and every other ill that people are concerned about.
2: Yeah, I think that's what makes the whole thing so seductive. Um, Within within the theory, they refer to critical consciousness, and that is having taken on the right kind of consciousness to see critically through the systems of power in um, common Um, parlance at the moment, yes, we have the word woke, which comes from African American vernacular, but it's essentially looking at exactly the same thing. If you are woke, you can see these systems of power as they have been theorized by these particular theorists. It's, um, it's a very, it's a very religious. Um, kind of um, attitude towards it, you know. People have seen the light. They they can they can see what's really going on, and they want to evangelize about it and and get everybody to, else to see it as well.
1: What's uh, really remarkable about this is the return of absolutism. We're seeing the return of absolutism after a very long period of moral relativism, where we insisted that if truth was one thing for me, you could have another truth, and that was an equally valid truth. Uh, we've now tipped that on its head. We're now back in the days of absolute absolutism, which you'll discover very quickly if you dare to disagree with somebody who calls themselves a social justice warrior. This return of a new very strident authoritarianism is really interesting and concerning.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um the the ideology which which sees power dynamics, systemic power dynamics as it theorizes them. Uh, pervasive throughout society and in every manifestation of social interaction and and phenomena, it has become very rigid. It has actually abandoned moral relativism uh, more or less entirely where it comes to anything that can be read through a lens of power dynamics. Uh, the, The new absolutism is that the power dynamics are wholly determining of who is on the right side of a discussion and who is on the wrong side of a discussion even who is authentically a member of the, uh, say, identity group or racial group that they, they happen to be a part of. We saw, for example, um, the, the rapper Kanye West uh, put on one of the Trump Make America Great Again hats and say, well, I think for myself now, and the result was Tana hissy Coates coming out a couple of days later and saying, well, he's no longer black. Um, so. There's a very rigid requirement to adhere to understanding the power dynamics that these these theories read into society and assume are, are the fundamental operating system of society. And if you deviate from that, the punishments are in some cases quite severe. Uh, cancellation um, with the street violence that broke out in the United States this summer; those were often, you know, physical manifestations of of either violence against People are more often against uh, property damage and destruction and rioting and looting and arson and all of these other things that were all justified in these terms. So, yeah, it's, 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 I think that's right. We're looking at something that's very uh, puritanical and very um, morally absolutist and rigid. Yeah,
1: yeah. And the other point that arises about what James has just said, I think uh, the public manifestation of this. The public, uh, decent average citizens in our streets, right across the West in particular, are staggered by what's happening. They're overlooking or perhaps not fully understanding that this is, uh, if you like, the front of very powerful ideas that are fomenting away in the background. And your book does bring to life just how powerful it is and how much it's fomenting and how extensive it is. It's also, I would call it, I think, a sort of deep lament for the decline of what you would call true liberalism. Now, each of us might in political and belief terms and so forth come from somewhat different places, but but under liberalism, we would say we're able to communicate. We have enough in common, enough respect for one another and for each other's dignity and our perspectives on life to be able to deal with one another and communicate with one another effectively. And that lets us hammer out our ideas and find sensible consensus. So I have to say to you, I share your very deep concern about the breakdown of liberalism. But can I have it in, in your words? What to you is liberalism and why is it so important to fight to try to reestablish it? <laughs>
2: Okay, so when we're looking at liberalism in that broad sort of philosophical um, sense, so we're now speaking from three different continents, um, each of which actually use liberal in slightly different political sense, but quite (laughs) radically different political sense. So yeah, it's important to to clarify first of all what we mean by liberal. We're we're talking about an ethos. Of freedom, uh, freedom of belief, freedom of speech, of um, plurality. So people can have different ideas and they can coexist alongside each other without anybody having to dominate over anybody else. It's got the, at its center, there's the individual. We want everybody to have access to everything, regardless of what their identity is. And there's the universalism in which we believe that we are all members of the human human race that everybody again should have the same access to everything and we can empathize across any kind of divides that exist and within that we there's also in in liberalism there's the whole sort of idea of color blindness in which we're not judging people by the color of their skin there's meritocracy where we want people to be able to achieve on their own merits, which doesn't mean assuming that everybody can already do that and there aren't any barriers in place. It's about creating a society where they can. So this is the the very sort of broad idea of liberalism, of freedom and equal opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I think of liberalism uh, as, a, as a set of, of conflict management strategies or dispute management strategies that serve those goals that Helen was, was talking about, those ideals that Helen was talking about. Uh, and I think it's very important to understand that. So we have these principles of individualism, empiricism, uh, rationality, uh, even a culture of dignity where we, we minimize the the effect of slights and try to work out our differences as reasonable people who can, who can bridge the, the gaps between us uh, and only defer to authorities when we need to. And ultimately, what we have in any set of interactions, any society uh, between people, is that we have um, reliably that conflicts are going to arise. You might uh, believe one thing is true, whereas I believe another thing is true, and science was the innovation that will now defer to the experiment to figure out who was right. Uh, reasoned argument is is the point is the house of philosophy, and this is really the basis of the scientific side of the Enlightenment or the epistemological side of the Enlightenment. And then we did the same within politics. We figured out about divided powers of government, but also figuring out how to take a government and leave it accountable to the people without turning into a democracy that's a mob rule, tyranny of the majority kind of situation. And so these general principles of conflict resolution where you and I might disagree for some reason or another, but then we have a... a, of rules of engagement by which we're able to resolve those conflicts maximally productively uh, is, is ultimately what liberalism is about as a philosophical orientation. And As I think Helen said, the most important features of liberalism are a centralizing of the individual, a belief in a universal humanity that allows us to cross bridges from one to another, and a willingness to defer to the most objective standards that we can achieve, whether that's through science, rationality, agreed upon for today at least, rule of law. We can change the law through democratic processes if we don't like it, but we can agree upon the law today as a standard. And you know, we can go to many, many, many more examples of uh, objective yeah. type standards that, that we want to try to defer to in order to make these conflict resolutions as impersonal as possible, because that takes the the personal self-interest and minimizes it and uh, facilitates being able to do so in ways that are productive rather than, say, violent.
1: And to stop and think about a great figure of history such as Theodore Roosevelt, Uh, we apparently now want to pull his statue down, but he seemed to get to the heart of Western liberalism when he said, and I'm paraphrasing roughly, that no one should be above the law, that's a common saying, But no one should be beneath it either. So you get universalism, and when you find somebody who's not part of it or has been marginalised, you seek to address it. What we now see is the act of pursuing, it seems to me, a sort of new aristocracy. And we know how that usually ends. It's not well. If liberalism is such, and I think we're all saying it, such a superior social philosophy, why is it in decline? Why is it under threat and being weakened? Has it not defended itself well enough? Haven't we taught it well enough in our schools?
2: I think because we've had um, liberal societies for for quite a long time, you know, this is um, it's been a good sort of 50 years at least since we have been understanding um, liberalism as a norm. We haven't had to defend defended against anything. Particularly, we haven't had to defend it against um, claims of, of social justice. Using liberal principles has always been the way to achieve um, social justice. That was how the civil rights movement worked. It was how liberal feminism worked, how the early gay gay pride worked. So this, this has been a norm for quite a while. We haven't had to defend it. But I think liberalism isn't really a very... Um, intuitive system for humans. I think if, if we look at history and we look at most of the world, it looks like humans trying to dominate each other, trying to set up one school of thought and then um, make everybody else uh, adhere to it. So this whole sort of liberal development is really very new. It's, it's a product of, of modernity and it needs to be um, consistently maintained and upheld and reinforced. And we, we haven't been doing that. Now there's um, a tendency to think of it as um, hopelessly naive. And within the, the sort of critical theories that we're looking at, there's um, there's this idea that it is actually white, male and Western, rather than something that belongs to all, all humans, that there are liberals everywhere.
0: Uh, at least in the United States, I can't speak for y- your island's but I can speak that the United States uh, civics education has been quite weak for a number of decades, at least two, because that's when I would have been in school. So maybe at least three. Um, and that's a problem. So, no, I don't think we're we're teaching liberal ethics. I think part of this I was reading recently that part of this may have to do with the fall of the Soviet Union, at which you had uh, Francis Fukuyama declare the end of history, that liberalism had won. And you don't really have to give a robust articulation of or defense of something that is one. It also doesn't readily have a clear and present uh, comparison or enemy that it has to be held up against to say, this is why we want to be liberal, because we don't want to be like that. Uh, And so that, historically speaking, may be significant. But within these critical theories that we talk about, there's also been a deliberate effort to... um, take that away uh, to make that less relevant and, in fact, not wholly wrongly to identify it with with uh, patriotism and nationalism in ways that are not always productive of, of good things for their countries. Those, of course, patriotism and nationalism on t- to the right degrees can be valuable to instill values, but at the same time, they very easily go too far and uh, the critical theorists have done a very good job, especially in education, of exploiting that uh, and trying to shy away from anything that looks like a, a jingoistic, uh, rah-rah, kind of nationalistic or patriotic education. And in so doing, have done a, a fantastic job of getting people to to question the underlying mythology and symbolism and, and even civics of their uh, parent nations.
1: Yes, I I do think we have failed to teach history the sort of ideas of religious beliefs and the story of our heroes and those who have shown great courage and foresight in the past to our young people. And that, I think, leaves them in a situation where they're easily persuaded, easily moved around, easily manipulated. I think that is uh, one of the marks, frankly, of our culture in Australia. Young people, and I I don't set out to criticise them, I, I don't think it's so much their fault Uh, because many of them show signs now of wanting to know more, but they've allowed themselves to be fertile ground because they've not been given thorough grounding in how we came to be relatively free and prosperous and peaceful in terms of the society that we live in. It's as though the factors behind what I would think of those very desirable qualities are actually bad, actually evil somehow in and of themselves. Um, But... I think uh, you argue very well in the book that critical theory leaves a great deal to be left from an intellectual point of view.
2: I think that they're undoing a lot of the progress that we've made where we've expanded our circle of empathy outwards. We've become less um, tribal, our in-group has become much bigger, we can empathise with a greater range of people. Now since we have been seeing an increase in identity politics, and that that identity politics from critical theorists is also then often matched by sort of white identity politics and um, rigid gender roles from those on the right. And this is coming at each other in a way that really does bring out the worst parts of human nature. If we have a a liberal ethos in society, then we have got the best sort of grounding for our our natural empathy, compassion and sense of justice. If we trigger our tribal tendencies where we put two groups um, in conflict with each other, and, um, and keep dividing people by more and more identity factors, we're likely just to bring out the worst of ourselves, our, our yeah. tribal instincts, which enable us to dehumanise and to vilify people who are very much like us but whom we no longer recognise as anything like us because of these arbitrary um, dividing lines that have been set yeah. up.
1: But you obviously also argue that it's very harmful, and I think you're right. I am worried about what uh, we're uh, uh, teaching our young people, where we're leaving them, but in what ways would you see primarily that these theories are playing out? And in what ways are they so very dangerous? I think you argued very effectively in the book, uh, and here today, that critical theory feeds, nurtures and builds up identity politics. And identity politics, it seems to me, is very dangerous. For democracy because it draws a line between good and bad in entirely the wrong place, between one person and another person, based on things like people's beliefs, attitudes, or possibly physical characteristics, rather than where that dividing line should really sit, which is somewhere across each of us, recognising that none of us are perfect, we're all capable of making mistakes, we're all, capable, frankly, capable of regressing and moving forward as citizens.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, and I actually think that the this is a, a location where these critical theories are very damaging, not just on the kind of global level of creating tribalism, but also on the very uh, personal, individual level and at the level of, of relationships. It becomes very difficult to have a true relationship with somebody if you have to recognize that, some, that other person as a member of a group ahead of recognizing them as an individual with whom you are relating for example. So relationships become poisoned. And then when you add in the underlying assumptions that the systems of power are present and manifest and relevant to that relationship, and so that the right thing to do is to constantly bring them up and identify them and work through them, these kind of very negative rapport, painful, uncomfortable conversations that nobody particularly wants to have very often because they're, they're very unpleasant, you poison relationships rather severely. I hear frequently now from people whose marriages are splitting up over this or whose children have, have rejected or denounced them because of the differences over this ideology and, and whether they support, say, Black Lives Matter sufficiently or not, whether or not they're now racist or whether there's been hidden racism in the relationship. Um, I hear a lot of of this. I also think it it teaches people, you know, I generally, I don't think that it's great to have a you know rose-colored glasses view of the world, a naive, optimistic view of the world. But if you are going to look at the world and you have to choose between having a, a view that, that skews positively or negatively, uh, it's probably generally mentally and emotionally healthier for people to see a world where everything in the, in, in the society is not corrupt and bad and working against them or trying to hold them down or making them complicit in the harms and injuries and traumas of other people. And it's generally healthier to have a somewhat positive view. If you have to err against reality one way or the other in terms of understanding the world and your your relationship to it, seeing it as generally positive versus generally negative is is probably healthier and better and more pro-social. And critical theory being, as we discussed why we chose the title, Cynical Theories, does precisely the opposite of that, uh, more or less on steroids. It teaches people to find the problems in literally everything they look at and to believe that uh, forces way beyond their control. Systemic power dynamics are determinant of what will happen to them in their lives and that those play out, as Helen was pointing out, in the most crude uh, group-defining ways, not even groups that people might willfully join, like a religion or like a political party or a, an affinity group, but rather groups that are based on how you happen to have been born. Um, it's a very, very crude and ugly way to start teaching people to see the world, uh, and again, in a very negative light. So I think that it does damage on basically every level you can possibly imagine. Uh, and they explicitly say that their goal, of course, is to to tear apart the seams of the social contract or the social fabric that defines societies. So if you tear the seams of 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 society apart, I I don't see how this works out in the end for the people who have to live and work and relate to one another in that society.
1: It seems that we can't ignore bad ideas and their potential to grow exponentially. And critical theory, cynical theory, as you put it, seems to have done just that. It now goes well beyond academia. It seems to me, for example, that the Great Awakening, to call it that, has really, really taken hold in places like Hollywood. Now, to me, it seems that there's a terribly harsh and nasty side of this that in fact intimidates people who might want to digress or disagree with it.
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, when we're looking at the there's a kind of feedback loop going on between um, theorists and activists. So um, an academic um, question cr- criticised me lately, saying she, she doesn't think that we could say there's this direct line. Michelle Foucault said this, then people wrote about it. Now everyone believes that. And I think that's right. I think we saw. We we tended to refer to it as a kind of virus. So that that first burst of postmodernism, it stayed in the academy because nobody could really understand it if they were outside it. It was a really intensely, um, radically sceptical, deconstructive thing. And it it just destroyed itself. But when it came back, it came back in conjunction with um, radical politics and it had the ability then to be seized upon by an average, the average person who hasn't spent um, years studying um, postmodern philosophy, but has got their their allegiance in this kind of identity politics um, radicalism. So that is why it has been able to to spread. Um, So much more easily. And then in the 30 years since um, this has been happening, the language has got simpler and simpler. It's become more and more sure of itself. A a 10 year old could read and understand Robin DiAngelo quite easily. And there's that seductive um, nature of it where you can just read a few books of these kind of ideas and then develop this very simple framework based on identity and injustice, and you can lay it over society, and then you can read everything through it, and you can be a virtuous person who is trying to make the world a better place just by using this this theory.
0: That's right, yeah, and and it's certainly true also that certain sectors of our media definitely picked it up as something that they saw as consistent with, with engendering social progress. Not wholly wrongly, but when it gets taken to a degree to where it's uh, gone too far and becomes cynical, it becomes dangerous. And in particular, I think one of the things, of course, we it's very difficult to to ask the question of why did this mainstream so thoroughly now when it has been around for so long and did not succeed before without pointing out that social media and the Internet are definitely kind of its natural playground and have, have facilitated that. So you see a feedback loop. Also, um, the the kind of I put this on Twitter recently today. The meme version of critical theory is a hot take, as they call them. So it's some kind of a kind of um, pessimistic or cynical read on society that that digs into hidden motives that makes the, the person who sees it think, "Whoa, everything's a little bit different than I thought it was," and "Wow, there's there, there's corruption hidden within that." And so it's these these sort of things tend to go much more viral on the internet than do uh, more sober analyses, or especially detailed technical and academic analyses. And that same tendency is going to to, to spread pretty widely, especially through media. So you have a strong tendency now within um, news media to find it's always been, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, outrage is even better than blood. And so when they can find something where they can stoke this outrage, It gets much more attention, which there are broken incentive structures around that. And then that creates the illusion for the average person paying too much attention online or watching too much news that the world is in a much more uh, precarious or awful state than it actually is. But that's a perfect fertile ground for critical theories to swoop in and say, well, here's the explanation for that. Here's why that is the case. It turns out that all these awful things that we thought that we had left behind, we didn't leave them behind. And look how real they are. And then they have a, a bevy of examples that they can pull and cherry pick, in a sense, to say that things are far worse than they actually are and the progress has, has effectively stopped or reversed. And then the, it, it's got a very uh, psychologically gratifying nature to it to uh, to share the outrage. And so the, there's a bias toward that in our media that uh, I think creates a second feedback loop that's also helping to mainstream it very quickly.
1: You know, it does seem that if there's no forgiveness in this day and age, your hope might have been that people would forget. But that can't happen either because social media records so much. So if you're unforgivable, you remain in that state because you not only can't be forgiven, what you've done can't be forgotten and washed out, which I think is a pretty frightening way of looking at the world we may be living in in the future.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a number of traits coming together all at once. So so we have, because there's no uh, real respect for the individual, people are seen as um, a player in this um, battle of of power dynamics. And so if they say something which is um, seen as, as speaking into a white supremacist or patriarchal or systemative discourse, They are not somebody who is making a mistake. They are an agent of this oppressive force. Then we also have the belief that impact is more important than intention. Because we are not understood to have our own um, minds and be able to be the authors of everything that we do, we have to take responsibility for the impact that our actions are theorized um to have so it isn't really a matter of, of saying simply i made a mistake i was very thoughtless that that comment i made must have been hurtful i'm sorry about that you have to you know a- apologizing is not necessarily going to save you it's it's probably not going to save you at all some some people managed to, to get away with it but um no, usually apologising just makes them angrier, and then we we have that underlying um, cynicism, and I, I think that cynicism makes people very harsh and angry. Whereas a more liberal humanist um, approach will, you know, look for for redemption, look for um, the humanity in a person, and be more prepared to um, to forgive. If you're seeing everything in this cynical sense of power dynamics it really is a battle between good and evil and and people. the the bad players just have to be taken out.
1: So a couple of questions about the book. There's now a lot of pushback and a lot of circles in the public domain uh, uh, against the sort of nonsense that you discuss, but now you've written a book that's obviously aimed at the academic world. I'd be very interested to know if it's having any impact there because there are people from right across the political spectrum left, right, and centre, I think of Jonathan Haidt, I think of Douglas Murray, I think of Coleman Hughes and dozens of other prominent people who are now becoming very effective and articulate critics of woke ideology. To what extent do you see it playing out in the public arena? That's question number one. Question number two, do you think this pushback is now starting to correct the imbalance in academic circles? I'm not very optimistic about academia whatsoever at the moment.
0: And um, I did, I at least, I don't want to speak for Helen, but I had hoped that this book would be something that forces a reckoning in academia. But academia, by its very nature, and this is generally a good thing, tends to be slow, tends to be methodical. It tends to to look through and take things very cautiously. I know that there's a kind of very quiet groundswell around the book within academia. And so while it appears that the book was written um, for academics, because it's so meticulously researched, and I hope scholarly, uh, that's actually more of a shield from unfair criticism that we know will come from academia. And the real intention for me was to make this book accessible to the public and to have a public groundswell around it, despite its rather heady and dense um, presentation. So I think that that has happened. I think that is is definitely happening. The The amount of popular support for the book, which given how academic it is, is somewhat surprising. The amount of popular support for the book is is just actually not only astonishing, it's been a problem. We can't keep up with printing books fast enough for uh, the people who want them. And people are coming back. And every day I receive a large number of messages or emails telling me that this book has finally given me the ability to understand or to articulate, especially what's going on. I've had a sense that something has gone wrong and I don't know what it is and I don't understand how it happened and now I do. So I think that um, academia, the question is we'll see uh, if and when it it makes any any dent. And then outside of academia, I think it's actually having quite a a bit more impact. And that was my hope at least with it.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some positive um feedback from, from academics. This has mostly been from those who obviously weren't deeply embedded in the social justice ideas anyway. So there's um the, the old the old left, the socialist left, um we've had some positive feedback from them. We've had some um from the 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 liberal left, from the liberal centre and the liberal right so that's 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 been encouraging. We've had a few of the um usual culprits just sort of saying we're we're fascists or something, and then we've had the usual problem with um uh, philosophers who are very upset that we didn't spend the book going into great detail about the philosophical antecedents of postmodern thought, but actually worked forwards from that. So there's there's always people who want us to be more academic, and they're critical critical of what we've of how we've done it because. It's aimed at people with no background, so they say that then it isn't scholarly enough. And then there are people who still find it a bit too heavy going and think that we've made it too scholarly, and and they want to have a a meme version of it. And I I think though, as as we've got seem to have an equal number of those, I'm I'm taking that as an encouragement that we've actually got the balance right. James,
1: if I can come to something that you've been working on, the idea of cultural Marxism has become quite contentious of late. I'm not quite sure why, because Cultural Marxists tend to use the term themselves to describe themselves, the Frankfurt School, Gramsci and his followers. They were plainly intent upon advancing the revolution that wasn't happening quickly enough by undermining the institutions of the West. Now, you point out that the international liberal order that we're we're decrying the loss of um, is in many ways uh, the uh, product of the institutions of the West. I think you're on to a very powerful point, but... You recently wrote an excellent article on the relationship between Marxism and wokeness, as I understand it. Uh, Your essential argument there, or as I'd summarise it, might be that wokeness is profoundly Marxist, but also non-Marxist at the same time. Could you just unpack that for us for a moment?
0: Yeah. uh, So wokeness, the the primary thing that is Marxist, if if you will, but really Marxian in orientation, not to nitpick too much with that word, Uh, within wokeness is that it relies on Marx's idea of conflict theory, just as did the critical theory school, and just as did Marxism proper. Uh, The the conflict theory idea, in very brief, is the belief that society is is broken up into um, classes of oppressor and oppressed, and those two groups are in conflict with one another not any kind of a cooperative venture for the, the access to power, resources, and opportunities in society. And the the, the idea of conflict theory, as Marx laid it out, is that the underdog, the, the proletariat, as it was with economics, have the moral high ground and the right to agitate for a revolution that overthrows, as he, he named them, the bourgeoisie, talking about the, the uh, economic structuring of society. Then, then our critical theorists Friends in the Frankfurt School, if we'll call them friends, did, as you noted, move that into the cultural arena. Um, they wanted to look at the various institutions of liberal society and the family, faith, uh, science, reason, Enlightenment values, uh, popular culture as it was emerging. Um, the ability to propagandize, in particular, was very interesting when they were interesting to them when they looked at media. They were, of course. Simultaneously, people who are trying to figure out why the Marxist revolutions had failed and to, to correct for that failure, while also staring at the emergence of fascism and trying to figure out why people were democratically choosing fascists uh, to be their leaders in, in Italy and in Germany. And so, some permission can be given to them there, but the, their ultimate objective was to bring Marx's analysis to another level, which was cultural and to bring it into, into people's heads using uh, Freud, in particular, Freudian psychoanalytic theory, was to be married to Marxist theories of, of economics to, to understand culture better. And that was kind of an explicit project that they they undertook. So that hasn't gone away, the the woke have inherited that, the woke of today have inherited that same conflict theory applied to aspects and elements of culture. They've also adopted the um, very they they say the philosophers call it post-Marxist view of the postmodernists. modernists uh, The postmodernists had had been communists themselves. They were, in fact, in the 50s, big fans of uh, Mao Zedong. Um, but they also had to contend with the fact that Stalinism hadn't worked out real well, and the other attempts at communism in the world hadn't gone real well. And then even Mao's uh, attempt at a great leap forward, or forward resulted in possibly as many as 100 million deaths and it wasn't going real well. And so they had this kind of uh, nihilistic despair that probably you know, drew heavily off of French ex- existentialism in the first place, that there's no solution to society anymore, but we should still kind of have a generally pro-communist uh, view in the sense of being against liberalism, being against capitalism, and seeing those as the, lo- the loci of uh, failure of, of Western society. And so their criticisms were, you know, levied against Marxism and Marxist thought, but they were much more vigorous against the the hallmarks of uh, post-Enlightenment Western thought. And so this is all kind of the background noise, if you will, from which uh, the woke ideology started to come into play. Of course, it also has to be noted that uh, a lot of the early architects of the social justice, if you will, ideology that we now identify with wokeness, were themselves very radical feminists or very radical uh, liberationist, usually racial liberationist scholars. And the feminists have always had a, uh, especially the more radical feminists who were not liberal feminists, had a, a pretty tight relationship with Marxist thought, too. They saw the patriarchy as a manifestation of capitalism. The, the same thing happened in liberationist thought, which actually came out of the Frankfurt School from Herbert Marcuse. Um, the liberationists saw that racism was a mani- It was an application of capitalism. So a lot of these kind of Marx, Marx-based ideas, set the theoretical underpinnings of, um, of of the woke ideology. But on the other hand, the woke don't care at all. It seems about economic class, except to say that it correlates with their various identity factors, and so they use identity. Uh, they use they use economic issues that the Marxists are actually very concerned about still, and say that the real variable of of interest is something to do with with identity politics, uh, racism or sexism or misogyny or homophobia or transphobia or ableism or what have you, the exasperated et cetera. Judith Butler called it. And you have to list them all. So the relationships between Marx shaped thought and woke thought are. Are pretty profound, but it's a it's a also profound error to believe that they are Marxist in orientation. Um, the simplest, now that I've given this extraordinarily long and complicated preamble, the simplest way to phrase that uh, was courtesy of our friend Mike Nana from Melbourne. So he's from from Australia, and he said that where the Marxists sought to remake society by seizing the means of economic production, the woke seek to remake society by seizing the means of cultural production, especially around matters of identity politics as far as how they're going to do it. So I think that that's the closest thing and the simplest way to put it. It's Marxist in shape, but it's not Marxist in expression. It's actually the Marxists today hate it. Um, they see it as very bourgeois, which is correct. They see it as, uh, what was the phrase that they that they wrote? Um, it's supposed to be workers of the world unite, not races of the world divide. Um, so they're, they're very, very critical. The actual Marxists are very critical of the woke ideology. So it would be incorrect to call it Marxist if the people who actually call themselves Marxist try to get away from it and as vigorously as possible and get back to real Marxism.
1: Yeah, that's tremendously insightful. And you're sort of left with the impression that you're right to use the word cynical in relation to all of this because, in essence, as a friend of mine in Australia put it just recently, It seems that what you have here is a massive determination to destroy what remains of the cultural house in which we live with no clear alternative dwelling for us to move to. It's almost as though it's born of anger and a desire to simply smash rather than to create something better. And it hides on noble-sounding terms like its very name, who could possibly be against social justice? Now, you've been very generous with your time, but this brings me to my last uh, last point. People do feel very intimidated. I mean, I'll freely admit I often feel I've got to be very careful about what I say, no matter how well-intentioned, for fear that I step on some unforeseen minefield and blow myself up in complete innocence with no chance of restitution. People are frightened. Now, you're giving them some magnificent tools here, tools of understanding, tools with which they can politely push back Firmly push back, but maybe the other thing we need is a little more courage. Maybe we just need to be braver before it's too late.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's that's something we're also looking at at the moment. For for people like like Jim and like me, you know, we we can do this. Nobody um, employs us. We can um, make these arguments. We can't really be cancelled. So I think people who are in this position should. Um, speak out about it if if they can, you know, and and it's something to to think about that in order to be able to to speak out against this, you really have to be sort of financially independent. It's 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 a privilege for for sort of um, more wealthy people. It, this isn't something that the average person. Can safely do, but I, I think what we we also need to do, and I, we're we're talking to people, we're sort of bringing them into a, a Discord server that we have, and introducing them to each other. We want to try to produce a kind of tipping point. We want people to know that they are not alone. They might be surrounded by other people who are also too scared to say anything, but may also have exactly the same concerns. That it doesn't mean. Um, that you are racist, sexist, or homophobic if you don't believe in this particular theory. You can be legitimately opposed to all of those forms of bigotry without believing in this theory. You can find other people who also share your positions, and you can feel confident to have the moral high ground to, to push back at it and to say, I don't believe what you believe. I don't think that's ethical. And if we can get more people together and have a few starting to speak out I think we will see something like an avalanche at the moment the first people who put their heads above the parapet are going to get it shot off but if we can get enough of them and every and a load of people to stand up at once and say no this this is not um, evidence-based and it is not consistently principled then I I think that tipping point will happen.
1: Well there was something Helen said there that was really important I think the need to be financially independent reminds me that Uh, It seems to me that wokeness has taken an extraordinary hold, uh, certainly in this country, and we have this problem where some of the wealthiest, most privileged and sophisticated people are caught up in this, are great advocates of really very cynical theories. It seems surprising to me that they don't know better. They're actually engaging in a whole set of approaches which are going to end up ending everything that they say that they hold dear. That's the irony of this. And what frustrates me about some of these people is that they're actually very well educated. They've been through our best schools, through our best universities. They think they've been awakened when, in fact, they've been blinded. Why is it that this is critical theory, if you like, and and its products have taken such hold amongst so many well-educated people? Because as you say, it's people who are privileged enough to be a bit unassailable in terms of their economic life. They're not going to be confined to poverty by losing a job for saying something inappropriate at school or at home or in the workplace. We need them to think clearly and to stand up. But they seem to be oblivious to the fact that they're in a very strange place that they've been misled.
2: <laughs> no, I, th- I think yeah, but we don't see it so much in um, you know in in the US. We've got the best figures from this. This isn't a thing that's really. Um, taking off in community colleges where people are are sort of goal orientated. This is to some extent a luxury um, belief. It's something that people can go and study if they don't um, desperately need to to go into a, a a form of employment that is going to be well paid. I mean, unfortunately, the social justice um, industry is rapidly increasing and um, the diversity, equity and inclusion officers are particularly well paid (laughs) at the moment now. But, um, yeah, it's, it's much more... Um accessible to to people who are wealthy, who have time, who can study these kind of theories rather than something that's immediately going to lead to a job in um engineering or or medicine or or something like that that's um that's uh, fruitful.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's the old saying about you know the type of absurdity that only an intellectual could believe, and it sort <laughs> of uh, comes comes to fruit here a little bit. Uh, people who have you know, I, I don't mean to to be disparaging of anybody who happens to have been fortunate in life and they're busy doing other things, but people who have real things to get done in the world very rarely have the time or the patience for sort of abstract theories of structures of power that, that interact throughout society. But people who have a little more free time and who want to try to 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 make a difference in the world where uh, Maybe results matter a bit less, which we would say are, is very common in, say, the commentariat. Uh, the, the risks are very low of being wrong in academia. As far as I can tell, the risks of being low in journalism and in the media are virtually zero now, Where uh, maybe they used to be higher. I see people who are consistently wrong about everything, more or less uh, on all sides, dominating the media. And so when when the risks of being wrong are low, it's much easier to entertain these kinds of ideas. And of course, it is true that, you know, I mean, why would you see the, the best educated people having taken them up? Well, they've been in, that's where they're taught. Uh, you know, nobody is teaching critical theory until you have a diversity training in your blue collar factory job, but they are teaching it in the university. So the likelihood that you've been exposed to these ideas, or even brought into believe into into a social group that believes that they're profound or important. In other words, a kind of fashionable nonsense, uh, social signaling, explanation that we saw from Alan Sokol and uh, Jean Bricmont in um, the 1990s. That also plays a role. I, when I said earlier that this is a very bourgeois theory, uh, I, I was quite quite serious that it is. Um, this is this is a kind of a. a Having these beliefs is sort of a signal that you have the luxury to have these beliefs um, without having to get into weird explanations about what gives people meaning in life and where meaning in life derives for different people. Though those things are are something I would encourage people to think about as well, uh, separately from from my explanations.
1: Well, again, thank you so very, very much. Thank you for your clarity. Thank you for the endless hours that must have gone into thinking all of this through and recording it for the benefit of so many of the rest of us. And uh, thanks for your courage. Not easy to put your head above the parapet these days, uh, and you've certainly done that. Uh, And I think that should inspire the rest of us to stand up as well. Thank you so much for your time in this conversation. Really appreciate it.
0: It was
2: great to see you again. Thank you for having us on. (laughs) And you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.
1: You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For
0: further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine,